All right, so we start a new chapter, Colossians 3. And as we dive into Colossians 3, if you remember the structure of how Pauline letters are written, you have a main body section. We're still in that main body section, but we're transitioning from more the doctrine-heavy portion to more the hortatory, the command portion. So, of course, we're still going to see a lot of doctrine in here. Uh, they're not completely separated, but the focus shifts a little bit uh, towards application. And so that's what we're going to see in these verses is a much heavier emphasis on how you should be living because of the truths that Paul's laid out so far in this book. Uh, so that's the big picture of where we are. And therefore, what we're really diving into is the category of Christian ethics. How are we to live each day? Uh, what does it live to mean to live a godly, moral life? Well, that's what we're addressing in this section. Along with that, we're going to see uh, an analogy, some language running through that is helpful for us to keep in mind, and that's uh, clothing as an analogy. And a lot of the wording Paul, Paul is going to use through here uh, brings to mind stripping things off and putting things back on. So taking off the old man, building, being built back up in the new. And so that's uh, an analogy that's going to run throughout chapter 3. All right, I think that's all I wanted to say for intro. Any questions about anything I said before we dive into the text? All right, well, let's just start by reading verses 1 through 4. Someone would be willing to read that. All right. Thank you, Lee. <clears throat> so now if we go back just for a second and look at chapter 2, verse 6, we're going to just kind of see this p- pattern. We've seen it already. But verse 6, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus in the Lord, so walk in him. You have a statement, an indicative statement, and then an imperative, something you need to do because of it. So you see that there. If you go to verse 20 of chapter 2, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And then it goes through and gives some imperatives there. Uh, and then three one, we see the same kind of pattern. If then you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. So we see that same pattern of indicative statement, uh, resulting command laid out here. And you may have noticed this when I give thesis or propositions in my sermon, it always follows the same pattern. There's an indicative statement, a universal truth about God or about his church, about what he has called you to. And then there's a, therefore, you must do this. And so I didn't make that up. Uh, the professors who taught me that method, they didn't make it up. They got it straight from Paul, uh, straight from this. Here's how things are. This is what you need to do because of it. So that, that pattern continues here into chapter 3. All right. Why does Paul say if to open up in verse 1? Right, if you've been raised. Right, right, so that's, that's the condition. If you were raised, then what do you do? Well, what do you think he means by if there? <laughs> yes. Yes. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Other thoughts? I think that's great. That's right on. All right. Well, I think, does anyone's translation say since instead of if? Does anyone have something other than if in their translation? No? All ifs? Okay. Uh, well, that, I mean, the Greek word is normally just if, but it does have the sense of sense, as Dave put it, uh, that it, it's not meant to be we read it and we doubt, okay, well, maybe we have, maybe we haven't. Now, of course, if you're not really walking with Christ and you're not taking things seriously, maybe you should be doubting things and maybe you should be digging in and going to Christ for mercy. But here, it's, it, if you are following Christ, it's not meant to have that doubtful sense. You're not meant to go here, oh man, shaking, you know, that's not, the intent of this if. It's a condition. If this condition is met, then you must do this. Therefore, if you're in Christ, you need to live this way. And that's what the if is for here. All right. So there's the big if. Now, what does it mean? Raised with Christ. Resurrected with him. Good. Yeah, I mean, it connects very closely to some things we've already looked at in this book. If you go to Colossians 2.12, what does it say there? Right. Right. Yeah, so this connection. And what was the big picture of verses 11 through 12? Don't go into all the details of the stuff we talked about that you probably don't remember, and that's fine. But what was the big picture? of that section that I wanted you to remember. Testing memories. Yes. Right. Because Christ has connected himself to you. So that's absolutely, it's that union and that's what we're put off the old because we're put into Christ. So that union with Christ was the main central idea. And so now in 3.1, that's the same idea as well. If you've been raised with Christ, well, the only way to do that is if you've been united to Christ. Uh, seek the things that are above. Now, raised, it can mean raised together with. It can mean co-raised with. You are so closely connected with Christ that even the Greek word there is just together with, co-raised with, something to that effect. Uh, since Christ was raised and you're connected with him, you're going to raise too. Uh, you're not going to be left behind somehow or fail to rise if you're connected with Christ. All right. So what does it mean now to seek the things that are above? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's the great kind of practical outworking of that truth. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. A passionate desire driving you. And it is a command. I mean, this is a command for you. If you're in Christ, then you must seek the things that are above. And then the next phrase, and if you're... Bible split on pages like mine is you have to flip the page for it. But what's the next phrase? Because that helps modify the things that are above. It's not just any old thing that's above. 
Why do you need to seek what is above? Why is that a good thing? Yeah, because that's where Christ is. He's the one who is going to be the source of everything good that you want to seek. Uh, you have to go back to uh, chapter 2, verse 3. But in him, talking about Christ, uh, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if you want to go to wisdom and knowledge, if you want to go to the source of life, you have to go to seek the heavenly places where Christ is. All right, then we get a further description. Where is Christ in the heavenly places? Yeah, right hand of God. And what does that denote, that right hand of God? What does that mean? When you see right hand in Scripture, what is it referring to? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's the king's right hand. That's where you want to be. Uh, so if he's at the father's right hand, that means there's power. That means there's authority. That means he is in the blessed spot, uh, the place of power. So if you go back, uh, go back to Psalm 110, and this is what Paul is alluding to is Psalm 110, which is, I think, the most quoted psalm or alluded to psalm in the Old Test or in the New Testament, going back alluding to the Old. So Psalm 110, and then if someone could read verse 1 when you get there. So what is Christ doing in glory right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father? He's what? Yes, interceding for us, so he's ruling over his people. And then what about those who are not his people? What's going on there? What does this psalm say? Psalm 110. Right, so obviously he's already defeated the powers, but they're still you know, dying out, so to speak. They're still going on with this world until Judgment Day. And at that point, then they will be fully put under his feet because the full final judgment will have come. Uh, but Christ is there ruling, reigning over his people and even over the unbelieving world while they're being put under his feet. Uh, it's really a, almost a process of it till that day. So that's where Christ is seated, and that's what Paul alludes to here in Colossians 3.1. So what does that say? What does that teach us about who Christ is, about who this one is that we have been raised together with? I know that's a, that's a tough question. There's a lot of answers there that you could give. Um, I think my answer would be you're united to the conquering king who's sitting, ruling, and reigning, and waiting to bring the final consummation. The one waiting to come back and rescue his people and bring judgment on the world of unbelief, too. Uh, so that God, seated in power and authority, that is where you are raised. That is who you have been raised with. Any thoughts or comments on that before we... Continue on into chapter or uh, verse two and build on that. 
Yeah. Yeah, very good. So there the direction in man's mind is we need to do these things to go up to God. Uh, but here it's Christ has done everything. And as you're connected to him, you're already up here. You don't have to do, you know, practice asceticism or something. Yeah, so the whole direction is changed. Anything else? All right, well, let's look at verse 3 then. So for you have died. Or wait, am I skipping something? Set your minds on things that are above. Oh, not on things that are on earth. We skipped that part. Uh, not on things that are on earth. What does that mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's good. And yeah, so our mind's really taken in two directions. So, you know, there's the earth and the cross and, you know, we're here. But then there's also a spiritual world. Or at this point, it will become solid and glory. So there's the spiritual realm, there's the physical realm, and at one point, it'll be all connected together. Uh, but right now, it's not. <laughs> and so spiritually, we're going to see in a second, we're up here with Christ, and yet physically, we're still here. And so, yeah, which world are you focused on? Because one is coming to an end, and one hasn't even seen its consummation fully yet. And so there's a big difference between those two realms. All right, good. Verse 3. So, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, in what way have you died? Because you all look like you're alive now. Right. Right, so without Christ, we're just in this realm. Spiritually, physically, we're stuck on the earth that's dying. We're dying. We're fallen. We're stuck in with the old man. But when we're raised with Christ, suddenly our spirit is alive in the spiritual realm with Christ. And so we're alive, and yet we're also dying at the same time. We have both that spiritual life that is growing, but also that physical life on this earth that is declining. And you have both running kind of parallel together. And so, yes, absolutely, it's your old nature that has died. And now your real life is hidden where? Above, yeah. Above is hidden with Christ in God. And just stop and think about that phrase for a second. Because it may just be a few words, but that is one of the deepest <laughs> phrases for a Christian in the New Testament. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like we're already there, but we're not fully there. We're partially there, and yet it's completely there. It, it, it's very confusing, but 
safe and secure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I think that's what that hidden is really meant to bring to our minds. So in a sense, as long as you're walking with Christ, it doesn't matter what happens here because your real life, the life that truly matters in the longer run, the one that will ensure that spiritually and bodily you are experiencing glory. That is what's hidden with Christ. See our protection, uh, being safe. Any other thoughts on that hidden idea? So what are you hidden for? What's the end goal of you being hidden with Christ in God? Yeah, you're being kept for that day. You're being preserved for that day, uh, protected, sealed, uh, however you want to word it, to where when Christ returns and the full consummation occurs with glory, new heavens, new earth, new bodies, that you'll be protected there and with Christ, um, preserved for that day. Good. Anything else? Right. And yeah, that brings to, to mind that goes very closely with already in Colossians, we've talked about mystery a lot. And how is the mystery typically referred to before it's revealed? Don't think too hard. It's the word we've just been talking about. The mystery hidden for ages has now been revealed. Well, now your life is hidden with God until it is fully revealed, as Dave was just pointing out, at glory. And so you have this protection, this concealing, till it's all fully brought into place. How does it connect with what we've talked about with false teachers, possible false doctrine, uh, bad ideas? How does it connect there? So we kind of talked about the ultimate bigger picture protection and safety and preserving, but what about those false doctrines and heresies that were uh, all over the place and still are today? Why does it matter that your life is hidden with Christ and God? Yeah. So it's not that you won't come in contact with them. It's not that you won't hear them, but you're united with Christ and therefore you're protected. You're even hidden from those false schemes of the devil, uh, those false ideas. What does it say about our identity? Who are you? Sorry. Yeah, Christ-like. Yeah. What else? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll see a few of those as we keep going in this passage, actually, in this chapter. Uh, Your identity is first and foremost that you are raised uh, together with Christ and seated in the heavenly places spiritually even now. And again, our minds struggle to comprehend what that really means because we're physically present here. And yet somehow we're also seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And Ephesians talks about that same idea. And it's not really any simpler or easier to grasp there. It's just as complex and enormous there as it is here. Uh, And yet it's this magnificent statement that we can dwell on and meditate on and find great comfort in, um, that we are hidden with Christ in God. Anything else on verse 3?
All right, well, the final verse in this kind of opening section of chapter 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And we've kind of already talked about the main idea of this, uh, that we're being hidden, waiting for, united to him, uh, separately, if you will now, body and soul, until it's connected in glory at the end, until the final consummation. Any thoughts or comments, questions about that? Right. Right. Yeah, we in no way become Yahweh, but we are connected to Yahweh somehow. And that's a, a high mystery, we'll call it. Um, and you just see that continuing that close union with Christ idea that undergirds all of this doctrine and theology. Christ appears, you appear. Christ is raised, you're raised. Christ dies and is buried, your old nature is died or is put to death and buried with him. In every step, in every way, you are connected with what he does on your behalf. That is an inseparable connection that you have with your Lord. Now, that appear word, um, appear with him in glory. You will also you also will appear with him in glory. Um, so this is a future. This is something that's happening at the end. We're not there yet, but it's also in the passive, meaning it's not something that you actively do on your own. It is what Christ is doing. When Christ appears, then you will appear, or if you want to say it in really bad English grammar, but it would be good Greek grammar, you could say you will be appeared. You will uh, be revealed with him. So God will reveal you, will appear you with him. And I know that sounds really weird in English, but that's the idea of the Greek verb. Um, you're being revealed with Christ at the end, and that's a really cool thought. All right, anything else in verse 4 before we, or that section before we continue on? All right, well, just keep in your mind that that's, that's the big opening because portion of this passage. Because of these truths that you are with Christ, raised with Christ, waiting on glory, then because of that, you will or you must live in the ways that Paul's going to tell you. So whether it be avoiding the sins he's about to tell you, there's going to be some positive statements of what you need to do as well. Um, that's the because and then the therefore, if you will. All right, someone could read 5 through 11, please. Thanks, Dave. So we start with a, a negative list 
uh, of things in verse 5. And what's the language being used here? Yeah. Yeah, forceful. I like that. What does that connect back with what we've already talked about in Colossians, this putting to death idea? What death have we talked about so far in the book, in the doctrinal section? Right. So you have been buried with him. Uh, your flesh has been put to death in him. Uh, your body of flesh has been put off by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him. So in all these ways, that old nature was put to death. And if it's been put to death, what does that mean for you? It's gone. Yeah, it has no power over you. You're not to serve it anymore. And that idea is carried on here. Therefore, remember that if you've been united to Christ, then these things have been put to, put to death. And yet it's not complete and final in the sense of your ongoing life. So in terms of your justification, it's perfectly put to death. But then in your present life, in your sanctification, is there still going to be sin? Yes, and then so you have to connect your justification with the fact that you must be putting to death the sin that is in you now, that is still hanging on in this life. And that's where this command comes in to put it to death. And notice we, we saw a heaven, uh, let's see, uh, verse 2, there was a contrast. What was the contrast? Right, things above and things below on earth. And so what are you to put to death? The, the heavenly things, the things that are above? No, you put together, put to death what is earthly in you. Um, some commentators note that this put to death is supposed to be a continual process. And of course, when we think about our sanctification, we know that's true. This is something we have to continually do. Uh, so just to simply put to death... Um, it doesn't necessarily bring that up in your mind, but just make sure you understand that that's what it means. This is a continual command that is always true for you as long as you're alive in this world. That you must put to death that which is earthly. All right, any questions about the command itself before we see what it, the description of these earthly things? All right, well, now we've got to dive into the unfun earthly things and to just to try to categorize this i think all of these kind of fall under the idea of lusts of lusting of lusting after something that is evil um, all of them kind of fit that bill later we're going to get to another list of sins that it kind of is in a different realm of sin it's all sin it's all evil um, i'm just trying to help you mentally categorize it so what are what is the first thing that you must put to death Thank you. Yeah, nobody wants to say it, right? Uh, this is that porneia word in the Greek that really covers any kind of sexual perversion or impurity. Uh, everything from adultery to homosexuality, bestiality, everything falls under this category of being uh, anathema, evil. Something that must be cut off and put away. It belongs to another life, not a godly one. Um, all right, what's the next one? Yeah, impurity. Another trans Does anyone else have a translate a different version of that? Does anyone have a King James or New King James? I was wondering if it said the same. Uncleanliness. 
Yeah. Okay. And it, that's interesting because that was the only other word I had for this was uncleanness. And uh, that's why I was wondering what they put. But yeah, uncleanness, uh, impurity. Uh, of course, that brings to mind some Old Testament kind of ideas of being unclean before God. And there's a huge variety of ways in which that can happen. Uh, but at the same time, you see that it can very easily and closely be connected with the word that came before it, this idea of sexual immorality. Uh, they're not worlds apart. They are very similar sins and uh, can be displayed in very similar ways. All right, what's the next one in the list? Passion. Now, is passion always bad? No. So what do, what do they mean here by passion? Yeah, the lust. And this doesn't just have to be strictly sexual. It can be any kind of bad passion. So being overly emotive and worshiping emotions, uh, that could be um, this pathos, this passion idea. Uh, but I, it definitely applies to the lust idea of sexual stuff, too. But it can be passion for other things, lusting after power or money. That would fall under this as well. Uh, seeking with zeal to the point where you have to gain this thing before you're going to stop. That's the kind of passion, this kind of unstoppable craving or desire uh, for whatever it is. All right, what's the next? Yeah, I don't know if we really need to explain that one so much. Like any evil desire falls under that. Uh, it's pretty self-explanatory there. And then the final one. Yeah. 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 Yeah, covetousness or... Uh, Greed could be another translation. Anyone else have anything different? Covetousness or greed? No? Okay. Uh, yeah, wanting things you don't have. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, when you go through and you read through the Ten Commandments, there are quite a few examples given in that list for coveting. Uh, do not covet this, 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 or this. Uh, it's all coveting. And then we get kind of a sub-statement at the end of verse 5. What is coveting really? Idolatry. In order to covet something, you have to set it up in your heart as something that is supreme, something that has some kind of value or, or that you want to worship. You can't covet something unless you've idolized it first. And so you see that little description there. And if you were a Jew hearing that, how strongly would that hit? Yeah, because you know Israel's history well and all about idolatry and the punishment. It's like, wait a minute, if I just coveted after something, if I coveted my neighbor's mule that's better than mine, then I've committed idolatry? Yes. Um, so for a Jew, that punches a little extra hard with that Old Testament imagery clear in mind. All right, any thoughts or comments on verse 5? No one wants to talk about sin? All right, we'll keep moving then. Uh but yeah, so that's that first table. As you can see, they all really well fall under that kind of that lust category. Um, now in verse 6, we kind of get some descriptions about it, some statements about sin. Uh, what does verse 6 tell us? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God's judgment on sin uh, in our minds, it's not always swift, but it is swift in God's timing. It's always in perfect in God's timing that he brings judgment. Uh, in the sermon today, we're going to be talking about God bringing judgment on a whole people because of evil and sin. Uh, and so one day when Christ is coming, so earlier we're talking about a good thing. We're hidden until Christ appears. Well, here, if you're in sin and you're not walking with Christ, 
You're waiting on the wrath of God, not rescue. You're waiting on the wrath of God, not consummation in a good way for you. Uh, so on account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. So it's interesting, Paul lists out very specific sins, and yet they're also kind of meant to represent all of sinful humanity, all of our fallenness in that sense, too. So it's specific, uh, you can broaden them out, but then they're also a summary statement in a way. So it's interesting how he uses that there. All right, and then verse 7. So these terrible, terrible sins that are deserving of God's wrath, judgment, condemnation, and damnation... Then what do we learn in verse 7? Yeah. Yeah. Don't walk around with uh, pride thinking that you are outside of these things. Because in some way, at some point, you're guilty of probably every single one of these things to some extent or another. And that's not something we want to admit. But every single one of those things, at some point, you were guilty of. Even since becoming a Christian, some of these things you could be guilty of. Because it's not just a physical act, it can just be a mental act. And so any one of these, or all of these, I would say, we have failed. Uh, and so before you get high and mighty thinking we're so much better as believers, we would never have done that, we would never do that again. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. And sometimes we go to legalism really quick, we write, write off certain sins in our minds, and we all know certain sins in our minds that are so much more evil than all the others according to our judgment that they could never warrant being saved. No one could ever be saved if they committed that sin. And I know all of you have done that at some point. I've done it at points. Um, we label things as unforgivable sins. And yet with that horrid list of sins just mentioned, Paul says, in which you once walked. So if you have a list of sins that you've labeled as unforgivable, <laughs> you better be careful. Because <laughs> uh, God's grace can overcome even those heinous sins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's where this would be a great spot to take a break and go through the whole Sermon on the Mount. But for the second time, we can't do that. But good summary of it there. Uh, anything else? All right, well, now we're getting to the second table of, of don'ts, of evils uh, that we must avoid. Um, could someone just reread verse... Uh, yeah, hold on. Yeah, just reread verse 8 if someone could do that. All right, thank you. So this is kind of getting to the, this is a new table of sins, not completely disconnected from the previous. Uh, but this is kind of more falling under anger and speech or even angry speech. They're all kind of falling within that category. Um but now we're starting to see the analogy that I mentioned we would see in this passage, and uh, I might have even missed where we had seen it already and forgotten to mention it. But what's that language that's used? What do you have to do with these sins? 
Yeah, put them off. So before it was put to death, so that ties us back to the union with Christ idea. Now it's put them off. So now we're getting to this clothing analogy where you need to take off the clothes of the old man and you need to be reclothed with Christ. And that's the language being used. And it, it continues on uh, in this section after this. But you must put them all away. Uh, uh, another way you could translate it is you must strip off these things. Uh, so it would be uh, kind of carry that meaning of removing it from you completely. All right, what's the first sin mentioned? Anger. Yeah, anger, uh, what does anger cover? (laughs) A lot of things. Uh, We get angry quickly over just about anything. And, yeah, yeah, why are they going 10 under in good weather and on a straight road? Yeah, uh, anger pops up in two seconds in our heart about just about anything, and we can display it in just about any way. Uh, anger comes out in a lot of ways, and it doesn't always look like anger to others. Um, yeah, anger is a constant problem. All right, what's the next one? Yeah, so difference between anger and wrath. Yeah, I like putting it that way. Yeah, it's, it's like a much more severe. It's almost like an outburst. So you've got your anger, which is enough of a sin on, and a problem all on its own. But then if you have outbursts of anger or, or fearful anger where you're so angry that others are afraid to even be around you, violence even could come out of that. And so it's kind of that next level of, yeah, the outward result of anger, the final result of anger maybe. All right, what's the next word? Malice. Yeah, anyone have a different translation there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's against someone and it can, yeah, be hidden. So you are, you're out for, to get somebody. Yeah, it can lead to gossip, slander, and, uh, slanders, the next word, or actually the Greek word, is the blaspheme word. Uh, so slandering, blaspheming people. Uh, so that can be a result of the malice or just trying to work against somebody to undermine them at every turn. You know, you can do that quietly without anyone else ever noticing except that one person. Um, but it, at the end of the day, it's anger and hatred boiling out into ill will towards somebody. Um, slander, what's a, a kind of similar word to slander? Similar sin, maybe, that we are very prone to? Yeah, gossiping. Uh, I think that's closely connected here. Although it's not expressly said, I think it would fall under slander. I mean, when you're gossiping, you're slandering somebody. If you realize it or not, doesn't matter. You're slandering them. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Anyone watched any of the uh, Republican primary debates this year? Yeah, that's same. And that's a sea of slander. Uh, that's just constant. And and then what did the person 
When someone would say something bad about them, about their record, what did they immediately say? Every time. Not true, not true. There's facts to the contrary opinion. That, that's wrong. And whether it's really wrong, well, we don't know if they're lying or if they're honest. But it's just uh, junk being thrown everywhere. And... Yeah, and that's interesting because uh, lots of verse. Yeah, see, that's the last one in mind is obscene talk from your mouth. Really? Interesting. So it kind of lumps them together, I guess. Um, yeah, filthy talk, what falls under that? Because you can take that in a few different ways, and I think they're all actually correct. A foul mouth, yeah, so just cursing. Uh, yeah, what else? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. It is just everywhere. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's where sometimes it's fun. It's not funny. It's really bad. But I'll be out talking with people and they just start cussing up a storm in their normal language. And then they find out I'm a pastor and then like, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean it's like you were going to do it either way. So whatever. But uh yeah, the 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 fear in their eyes is always really funny. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've always I said I've always thought it's a lack of creativity. You can't think of good words to say, so you just come up with a, a filler word. Um, yeah. So filthy talk, obscene talk, it covers a lot of a lot of ground in that one term, um, but none of it is good ground. It's all all very bad and. Of course, these things, just like the previous table, uh, we were all once guilty of these things, and at times we may still be guilty of these things. So we have to be on guard and put these things to death, to strip off these things, to remove them from us like uh, bad clothing or something. All right, any other comments on verse 8? All right, let's move on to verse 9 then. Now we get some more. Some more commands. So it says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So we're talking about very general sins, and now we're talking specifically about a relational sin to apply within the church, and you could say within your families as well. Uh, but do not lie to one another. So it's interesting that he puts that, he didn't put lying in with that previous list, even though he could have. He expands on that and specifically says, Do not lie to one another. I think that makes it bear some extra weight there uh, as a specific command for the body. And then what's the reason for that command? It's in the verse. Right, right. The new man doesn't do it. You don't do it. Yeah. He... uh, 
you have put off the old self with his practices. You have stripped off that filthy garment and you put on a holy, righteous garment, the garment of Christ. So you shouldn't be acting like you're still wearing that nasty garment. You put it off. Um, so that clothing analogy continues. Um, and notice that you get a double statement there. It's not just you put off the practice, you put off the self. That both are intri- intrinsically connected, integrally connected. I think I said that right. Uh, they're so closely connected that you can't just put off the practices. You can't just put off the old self. Both are together. Therefore, if you put off the old self, the practices must go with it. Meaning, if you think you put off the old self, but the practices remain completely, what might that mean? Yeah, it may mean you haven't really put off the old self. Um, and so that's a challenge in and of itself to us. <laughs> yeah. 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 Bless your heart can cover a lot of uh, grammar, a lot of ground, a lot of territory. Uh, Yeah. All right. Any other questions on verse nine? All right. Let's look at verse 10 then. So uh, we need to start nine there. You have put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So you've stripped off the filthy old garment and its practices together, and then what do you put back on instead? Yeah, the new self. So that replaces the old self, obviously. So, you know, your new nature in Christ. Now, what about the practices? Is that paralleled here? So you need to put off the old self and its practices. You put on the new self and what? Is there a parallel? Yeah, so it's interesting how differently he states it, and yet it is still a parallel. Uh, You still do see the other pair. So you put on the new self, and that new self is being remade, meaning its practices are being remade. I mean, his practices have been renewed into the image of its creator. So you want to understand sanctification or sum it up? That verse summarizes sanctification very well. Um, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Great. Anything else? All right. Well, we'll probably stop after 11 today. I didn't know how far we'd get. You notice I didn't even try to guess this week. I just put three. It's like we're not even going to try and guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, just remember how heavily that contrasted with a lot of chapter two of 
asceticism, tradition, religious worship, all the things that people tried to say is what brings you to God or what changes you. Uh, festivals, uh, shadows, um, Hellenistic thought, uh, old Jewish thought and trying to make that continue, adding to the gospel, taking away from the gospel, all those false things. Um, but here, none of those things matter. You are being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. Um, that's where the knowledge comes from. And that goes back to is it two three again, uh, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So again, you're going back to the source here. Um, meaning, if you're trying to be sanctified in your own strength without going to the source, are you going to succeed in being sanctified? No. And that's where, for us to rightly understand sanctification and how God is both doing it to us and yet somehow we're involved in it, well, you're going to Christ for strength to be sanctified. You're asking him to sanctify you. Um, If you're not going to him for that strength, then it's not, um, and it's in your own strength if you're not doing that, and then it's not going to happen. When you go in your own strength, you're going back to that old self and its fallen ways. All right. Verse 11, here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. So the Greek world stopped at this point. The Jews were no more. (laughs) So what are we talking about? Yes. Yeah. Very similar, uh, turn to Galatians 3.28. It's a very similar statement. It just helps kind of drive the point home to see it there as well. So Galatians 3, and we'll start in 27 actually, and we'll read 27 through 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, notice even the same clothing kind of language, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So it's not saying that these distinctions have ceased. It's not that we stop recognizing that there's a difference between male and female. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about that in Christ, that is your first identity, that connection with Christ, that being raised together with him. That being clothed in Christ and then seeking sanctification in Christ. Um, all previous identity markers fall by the wayside to secondary, tertiary, and on down levels. The primary identity becomes Christ and being clothed in him. Comments, thoughts on that? Sorry? Scythian. Uh, there was a tribe of what the Romans would have considered barbarians uh, so if you look at kind of Turkey up above, what is that, the Black Sea, and to the east, was, they were around that area. Um, yeah, they could be pretty brutal and stuff. Uh, yeah, kind of think, think kind of like Huns, but ancient. <laughs> That's kind of how they were. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
Right. Yeah, you have your identity. Why do you need something else? Absolutely. Um, and this goes back to if you know anything about the revoice stuff that's gone on in the PCA. I mean, it's kind of past now mostly. But in the past few years, there's been this whole revoice issue about basically it's how you identify yourself and can you identify yourself as this kind of Christian or this kind of Christian. Um, it's about someone identifying as uh, as a homosexual Christian. I can't remember the language. Was it a same-sex attracted Christian? Whatever his language was, there was this whole debate. Well, can you even say that? Because your identity is first in Christ. You struggle with that sin, it's down here. It's not your identity. And so that was a whole debate in the PCA. Um, so I'm not going to get into all the ins and outs of that, only that this is something that's debated all the time. Know that. But we have to come back to we are anchored to and united to Christ. That is our identity, period. Um, sins are not part of our identity. They are part of the old man uh, and the old self. And the practices that result from that, we have to continually be putting on. All right, any final comments or questions before I close this in prayer? All right, let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you united yourself to us, that just as you put our old natures to death when you went to the grave, so when you rose again, you raised us a new life. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we have been justified because of your work and that in you we are also being sanctified continually. So, Lord, help us to go back again and again for strength uh, because uh, the old practices, they want to cling on, they want to hold on. And we know we need strength to overcome those. We need the spirit. Uh, We need to not rely on our own strength. So, Lord, give us the ability to continue to fight sin, continue to make us holy until we see the day where you come in the fullness of your glory and we enter into glory perfectly with you forever. Never again to deal with that old nature, never again to deal with that old sin. Uh, just being perfectly remade in Christ. Lord, help us to worship because of that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.